I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now from Mass Live, it is Brian Robb. B-Rob, how are you, man? I mean, you're probably not as good as Grant Williams because he just got (laughs) paid and he just came from the white party, man, that was over the weekend. I mean, big weekend for Grant. Seriously, you couldn't have drawn up any better than this. Everyone's thinking his his market's dried up, but no, he's he's rubbing elbows with the stars, and now he has a bigger payday than I think most of us would imagine he would get uh, a few days later. So uh, props to him. It is kind of funny, right? Like, he ends up at all these parties. Like, I don't know how Grant's on the guest list of all these things. Like, it's Brady, it's James Harden, and then it's like, oh, Grant Williams is, like, Tatum's there, Jalen Brown's there, you get that. But all of a sudden, it's like Grant Williams shows up. Right, you don't see a lot of bench players. I mean, I know, like, Tobias Harris was there, but Ruben owned the Sixers at some point, so there's an easy neck there. But yeah, that's that's one for the, the follow-up question at the the, pa- the Mavs intro presser. That's one for Grant. Like, okay, enough about the contract, Grant. What? How, how'd you... How'd you finagle away in here? Because I think he's been at these for a couple of years now. This wasn't his first white party, if I remember. So this is, he has some kind of in that had, that has lasted here. Yeah, no doubt about that. All right. So he goes to Dallas in the sign and trade. The Celtics get the two second round picks back and the trade exception worth somewhere in that six to seven million dollar range. Now you had in your article that it's four years for 54 million. And if the Celtics had brought him back, it would cost him about 40 million in luxury tax penalties with the new situation here in the NBA, the new CBA and all that. Now, the Celtics at this point are about $7 million, as you point out, below that second apron. So obviously the team is less deep. Grant would have been the fourth big. And you can totally understand why the Celtics would do this. And I understand Brad saying they had the green light. But when you have a fourth big, it you're not going to pay him $54 million based on the new restrictions of the salary cap. So do you think this is a situation where the Celtics looked at this and said, hey, we're betting on Porzingis's upside over the depth of Marcus Smart and Grant Williams. Is that sort of the play for Brad Stevens here? Obviously, they love the talent in Porzingis, but you are a thin team now, B-Rob, as it currently stands. Yeah, and I think you kind of laid it out perfectly there, Ryan. Like, this is a bet being like, Porzingis, the, we like the upside of Porzingis more than we like Grant and Marcus Smart at the same money with the added bonus of having more draft capital as well that they got from the smart deal. And now a little bit of far smaller amount from this grant deal, but still um, a couple of second round picks nonetheless. But it is, it's to me, it's, it's, it's a fascinating situation because on the one hand you have Porzingis as a number three option, but then when you lose two core rotation members and smart and grant with a lot of continuity with this group and having maximum like defensive versatility of both those guys i think um i think that's gonna pose a really big question right now when you're talking about especially the playoffs like how what is this team gonna look like how are they gonna defend is that gonna be viable against a lot of opponents is like porzingis gonna be just destroyed like by damian lillard miami um in the pick and roll over <laughs> and over and in april may so it is gonna be there will be a referendum on all these decisions. Um, it won't come for a few months, but um, it certainly will put 
Brad Stevens in the front office in the crosshairs. Yeah, and now they're way less switchy than they were previously, too, right? Like, they love to switch with Al, even though they used him in a lot of drop coverage as well. But Rob is not somebody that's going to switch. Porzingis is not somebody that's going to switch. Grant was that option to give you that guy going back to when Ime was here, that switching scheme they had. So it seems like they're less versatile on defense as well, especially with Smart out of the fold as well. But I am interested in, like, the second-round pick thing because— you look at it now, what do they have? Seven second round picks that Brad has recently acquired if you go back to draft night five and then two from this. Right. And if you look at last year's deadline, Jay Crowder, and I know it didn't work out, but he went for five seconds. Sadiq Bay, I would say that did work out a little bit for Atlanta. He went for five seconds. Gary Payton went for five seconds. Josh Richardson for four second round picks. Thomas Bryant for three, even though some of these deals didn't work out. But is this sort of like the new currency in the NBA? And should we expect these second round picks, Brad, to use them closer to the trading deadline or at the trading deadline rather than this offseason? Like, are the Celtics, besides the Jalen extension, of course, does it feel like they're kind of done now? They certainly are if they're going to bring back Malcolm Brogdon. And I think at this point, they have the capital to move them if they find the right fit for it. But they also probably know, like, this is our last big, like, movable chip. And so if that deal is not there now or emerge in the next couple of weeks here, then, yeah, I think that's something that comes close to the dread trade deadline if this team needs a shake-up at that point or um, next season. I, In my mind, it's like with Brogdon, I think you can probably – that's an area you can maybe better address. Like, you could upgrade that part of the – you know, that type of player with these – picks and have more left over there of Peyton Pritchard and, you know, find kind of more cost efficient replacements, if you will. But um, we all know Brogdon's market right now. It's probably not great <laughs> based on how the yeah. situation with the Clippers. So the Celtics certainly aren't going to try to sell low here if unless they're, you know, taking a big swing for the guy, a guy they want and whether or not that guy is available at this point um, remains to be seen. But the longer this, drags out the more it looks like this is stockpiling for the deadline as opposed to uh the summer well speaking of that in terms of the brogdon situation one of the things that i worry about b rob now is i don't worry about him not being okay with the trade thing i think you understand at this particular point in time it's a business and if anything brogdon's going to get more playing time because of this right yeah. because smart is out of the fold here but the thing that concerns me is if you look at it 26 minutes per game last year and that kept him relatively healthy until, of course, the injury in the postseason. Brogdon's issue throughout his career, and the reason the Celtics got him on such a cheap trade, if you will, just that first-round pick in Aaron Smith, was because of the injury history, right? And then you start to look at the rest of the backcourt. Derek White, you don't worry about his health because he's the Iron Man, played 82 games. I would expect that this means we see more of Peyton Pritchard, even though he wanted a trade last year. Obviously, he's going to get more minutes now. But I wonder, like, are you comfortable with that backcourt depth that they have right now or lack thereof and does this mean like do we see jd davison this year who had a relatively good season in the g league i mean i know he's a a guy that was a five-star recruit and all that different type of stuff but i mean he can't really shoot he's a guy that shot barely over 30 percent from three-point territory at the g league level but is that now somebody we see in the fold because like i say with the big man rotation that's thin with injury prone guys al's going to be 37 rob and porzingis have injury histories the backcourt, you have Brogdon, who's an injury risk, and you wonder about the playing time, as I mentioned. And then it's Derek White and Peyton Pritchard. Like, now that group is very thin as well. Yeah, it certainly could cause quite the domino effect here if one of those guys goes down the, on either of those positions you mentioned. And to be honest, I think we have to, the Celtics have to expect that to happen in the front court, like with the guys they have there. Um, if you get more than like 30 games this year with all of Rob Horford and Porzingis, you know, available that's probably an upset if you will um but yeah as far as davidson go i expect him back on a two-way when i hear like i don't think he's quite there to the point where he might be pushing for rotations you know they signed Vietnam out of toronto i think that's more of a he's actually going to play summer league which is i think is interesting that's kind of a rarity for a third-year guy but maybe a yeah a sign of goodwill for him being like listen i want to learn this system quickly i want to make myself be in the mix for to be that 10th, 11th guy on the roster in case someone gets hurt there. But yeah, there's really, it. it's putting a lot of pressure on these bench guys. Like you have a, you have a solid top seven with 
presumably Rob Williams and Brogdon coming off the bench. But then after that, like Pritchard's your eighth guy, Hauser's your ninth guy. And then after that, it's Brissett. It's a bunch of fringe guys, a bunch of minimums pretty much surrounding out the roster at this point. So that is certainly a different equation than you have. It, it, it makes sense in the light of the new CBA, but as far as um, when you see the the Josh Richardsons of the world and the Patrick Beverly's of the world landing on minimum deals and other East rivals, that kind of puts you in a spot where the Celtics are like, ooh, that could it'd be nice to have one or two of those guys in that elk um, in those spots as opposed to um, maybe guys that don't necessarily you can count on in the bigger spots. Yeah, and I liked Richardson. I thought he was good for this team. And obviously, you trade him in a second for Derek White because of all yeah, the versatility I mean, he brings no. to the table. But and, and Richardson was like buddies with Tatum, too. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. So, And we know he can shoot threes and play some defense, even though the numbers haven't been great. I mean, the guy, I thought he was a solid guy. And O'Shea Brissett, I saw him play for my alma mater at Syracuse. I'm not expecting big <laughs> things for him after what we've seen so far in his NBA career. Worth a flyer. I mean, he's an athletic guy and whatnot. But how about Jalen? So... Obviously, the Supermax is not done yet, but it feels like to me, like Jalen was probably told and his reps were probably told like, hey, don't worry, we're going to take care of this. We just have all this other stuff we got to do first, then we'll circle back to you and we'll get this done, right? Like we as Celtics fans, we shouldn't be worried. Like this is just a matter of time before this happens. Yeah, this is a situation where I think there is some back and forth negotiation as far as the incentive stuff and maybe some player options like that. It, this wasn't a cut and dry. Hey, Jalen, here's five for two ninety five. Like, yeah, science when you want, like there, there is a like a trade kicker. Exactly. Right. So there is, this isn't a no strings attached supermax, but this is, I mean, both sides know the, the situation here. Like the Celtics are in a far better situation with Jalen under control, long-term, whatever they want to do with him. Like he obviously is going to be here for the short term, whether he plays out that contract here, that's a conversation for another day. And Jalen in this camp knows that this is the way you get no other team can give him this kind of money. So like, this is why any player who gets offered this type of situation as ultimately is going to sign here. So the, you know, they're more dominoes had to fall around the league. The Celtics had other business to intend to, I think maybe wanted to poke in around here or there, but um, it's pretty evident now. Jalen Brown is, is here going to be here for at least another year or two after that. Um, even with the Porzingis extension, it gets really interesting really quick in terms of whether the Celtics can effectively build around those three guys at the, the money they're making uh, once Tatum and Brown get these new deals. But for now, like you, you take your, your best shot with those guys. Um, you obviously change the mix around them with the smart and grant moves and brought in a, a number three that could take some pressure up Jalen on a, on a variety of fronts. And you have to hope that, that meshes well on the floor in the next uh, 12 months here. Were you surprised by the Porzingis extension at all? Because I, I was looking at it like, oh, if he's on a one-year deal, he may be really motivated, right? Not to say that he's not motivated. Obviously, he's coming to a contender, but this is a guy with a long history of an injury risk as well. And I'm just worried about the long term of that contract now where it's this year and then it's two additional years after that. Maybe this is part of the promise they made him. Hey, if you opt into this by the deadline so we can actually acquire you, we will give you two years. So maybe that's something the Celtics just ended up having to do if they wanted to bring in Porzingis, that he wanted some sense of security because he could have gone to the open market. Exactly. I think, you know, like there, that was uh, probably a, a handshake, wink, wink type deal when they were having those trade talks, when they were talking with Porzingis's agent, which I'm sure happened at that point. Um, because Otherwise, yeah, like, and that is, I think it is a really big game. I guess the, the number they got him at makes you feel a little bit better at it. Like, they could have offered him up to 277. Getting him for two for 60 is like, okay, this, this shouldn't, if he stays relatively healthy, this should be definitely not an albatross. Like, this should be a movable deal if it doesn't work or it could be a, a really good value deal. But it is, it's a, it's a, is this something that's going to define Brad Stevens in a lot of ways? Is like, he's yeah. making a big bet on Porzingis because that takes a lot of other options off the table for this group. It obviously is essentially you're trading Porzingis for Smart and Grant in a way here. Um, and that is, you know, going to make or break a lot of what happens next season. So are you going to be, are the, is the offensive upgrades going to be enough? Or are you going to be well positioned in the East? Or is it the fact that it's going to open up potential other holes, whether it's 
durability with the roster or just defensive, you know, question marks like that. That's it's not a slam dunk either way. I feel like. All right, B-Rob, and the big one, Damian Lillard, now his agent, according to Woj, is telling people that aren't the Miami Heat, Heat don't even try to trade for him, he's going to be unhappy, which I'll just say bullshit on that. Like, any, what's he going to do? He's just going to, he's going to be mad and not play? We know this is a guy that loves basketball, right? He's not just going to, he's not going to harden it, right? Just like show up out of shape, yeah. be partying, go take off, go to Vegas and hang out. Like, that's not going to happen, but... The Celtics, we've seen the reporting that they've at least reached out. We've seen Mark Spears on ESPN say, hey, Jason Tatum is recruiting Damian Lillard. Of course, there's the connection from Team USA. But do you give the Celtics a chance here to pull off a Damian Lillard deal just because of Miami's lack of a really an appealing trade package? I guess the Celtics could offer what? I know you had an article the other day. They could pretty much offer three firsts, some swaps. I mean, Rob would have to be part of the deal Brogdon would be part of the deal as well. It just feels like to me, man, like I continue to get pissed off about Miami. Like if they get this guy for what they're offering, it just feels like they don't really have an appealing package unless they get a third team involved. So how about the C's? Any hope, B-Rob, or no? I don't, like, if I'm Brad Stevens, what I do this way, you want to at least put as much pressure on the Heat to have to make them empty the cover. Like you want to give the Blazers a little bit of leverage here because there's really not a lot of teams that have the assets and also can be contenders right away that could be technically in the mix reloaded. The Celtics are probably on the top of that list outside of the heat, despite all the posturing that's going on. So yeah, like I'm moving like if you, if you're, if Miami gets him for, and still can keep like Caleb Martin and a couple other nice, like supplemental pieces. And that's like, that's, that's crazy. That they, and that's going to be a huge thorn in the side of the Celtics technically. And if they beat, Boston in next May, then that's like, man, what, what what was going on here? Why, like, shouldn't we have stopped this from happening? Yeah. But at the same time, I don't think I'd be very shocked right now if if the Celtics give up enough, even without including Jalen Brown, like you'd have to pretty much empty the cupboard, and that would be an all-in move push for just like one year. And so if you're praying on if you're planning on bringing Jalen back for that supermax, if you are comfortable paying him that money, then I don't think they tear apart everything else to top of Miami offer, even though that could be something that comes back to bite them down the line. Well, that means, man, all in on the zinger. Like, poor Zingas, <laughs> there is a lot, there's a lot of pressure on this guy, B-Roll, oh, yeah. right? I mean, they gave up Marcus Smart for him. Like, you have got to be really good for this team, and let's hope he is. I, I like the move at the time, too, just like, Hey, a guy that can shoot twos, a guy that can post up. It's a different thing that they have. So I like the move, but I think there's a lot of pressure on Porzingis. All right, that is Brian Robb from Mass Live. B-Rob, thank you so much for the time, man. Enjoy the rest of free agency. It feels like at least the big stuff is out of the way for you, and you're just waiting on the Jalen Brown extension at this point. Yeah, we got some big summer league coming up in Las Vegas, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> all, the, all the Jordan Walsh you can eat. So um, I'll be uh, yeah, heading out there Saturday, and we'll see. It sounds like... I would assume we hear something on the Jalen front when we're out there, and that'll be uh, be interesting to see what the the exact terms of that deal are and how it kind of the impacts the Celtics' future plans. No doubt. I think I may actually stay up late for that Wembenyana game. On it's a Friday night, actually. I think I may stay oh, yeah, up yeah, for yeah. his his debut. I mean, that could be exciting. No, I mean that I that place is going to be electric. I'm unfortunately not going to get out there till Saturday something, but it's like I was out there when like Zion debuted, and so when the when mm. the big names go out there, like that's. That's a really fun because it's, it's a bunch of basketball diehards out there. When if you're going to summer league, if you're just sitting around for eight hours watching, you know, G League <laughs> basketball, essentially. All right, B Rob, great stuff, man. Thanks, Brian. Take your first swing at betting MLB on FanDuel and get ten times your first bet amount in bonus bets up to two hundred dollars. That's right, just bet twenty bucks and you'll land two hundred dollars in bonus bets, win or lose. That's two hundred you can spend betting everything from the money line to the over under to who you think is going to hit the first home run. All right, and I'm looking at this Red Sox A's game coming up on Friday night. Nice little break here for the Red Sox as they get to play one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball. So I like the Red Sox on the run line. I look at it too. Luis Medina gets the start for Oakland in this one. Six thirty seven ERA on the season. Numbers are actually worse against righties than lefties. How about this? Righties are hitting 285 with a 952 OPS against Medina on the season. So give me Justin Turner for two bases and give me Adam Duvall for a hit as well. All in an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Plus, when you win, you can get paid instantly. 
There's no better place to bet on MLB than FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. So sign up today and visit FanDuel.com slash Pike to get $200 in bonus bets. That's FanDuel.com slash Pike. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. Must be 21 plus in presidents like states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there, as always, from B-Rob on the Celts. Really appreciate him coming on, as always, breaking down the Grant Williams trade. I did want to get to one other Damian Lillard thing that I just find amusing, and then I'll get to a carryover thought on Grant Williams from our conversation with B-Rob. Okay, so the Jazz are apparently one of the teams that's interested in Damian Lillard, and I just find this hilarious on so many levels. So if you look at what the Utah Jazz have, they have a ton to offer in a potential Damian Lillard trade, right? 2025, they have three first-rounders, their own, and then Cleveland and Minnesota, because of course they made those big trades with the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Minnesota Timberwolves in terms of Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. The following year, they have four in 2027. They have two in 2028. They have three in 2029. They have so many draft picks going forward, does this organization. Now, it would be funny if Damian Lillard got sent to an even smaller market, or I guess not technically a smaller market, but another small market in Salt Lake City, right? It's just the Jazz have so many picks at their disposal, so they could make a godfather offer to the Blazers if they really wanted to, right? Because we've heard this rumor out there. But from my perspective, this clearly doesn't make sense for Utah, right? Damian Lillard is a guy entering his 33-year-old season, and if he goes to Utah, it just, it doesn't fit their timeline. I like Laurie Markkinen. I like Walker Kessler. But I don't know how good a Damian Lillard trade would make Utah this season, right? Just run through the teams in the West. Are they better than the Nuggets? Hell no. Are they better than the Warriors? No. The Suns? No. The Lakers? No. The Kings, I'd even say no. And I know maybe the Kings take a step back. Maybe they're one of those teams that had a really good year and you expect them to be better, but maybe they're around the same or a little bit worse. But the Pelicans, they have Zion coming back. You would hope the Mavericks beefed up their depth in terms of their team. Of course, we know they added Grant. I'm just not sure if they're even a playing team with Damian Lillard, right? But the thing that I find so compelling about this deal is Danny Ainge. He's on the other side of this thing, right? Because remember, if you think about Danny Ainge and Pat Riley, they hate each other. Now, of course, Riley coached against Ainge when Ainge was playing for the Celtics in the 80s. But he also, of course, they coached against each other in the 90s when Ainge was coaching in the NBA. But remember, really when their beef started was when Danny called out LeBron back in 2013 when he was doing an interview And the Celtics weren't even playing the Heat. And Danny called out LeBron James. He was upset about LeBron was complaining basically about hard fouls in a series against the Chicago Bulls. And Danny had this to say. I think that it's almost embarrassing that LeBron would complain about officiating. (laughs) That's what he said. So then Pat Riley releases a statement. He doesn't even do an interview. He releases a statement and he says, Danny Ainge needs to shut the fuck up and manage his own team. He was the biggest whiner going when he was playing, and I know that because I coached against him, okay? So then (laughs) Danny releases a statement, and he says, I don't care about Pat Riley. He can say whatever he wants. I don't want to mess up his Armani suits and all that hair goop. It would be way too expensive for me. So Danny fires back at Pat Riley after that. So it was just, it was an awesome rivalry in the middle of the Heat Celtics thing that was going on. But it's just awesome to me because as I was explaining, I don't think this makes any sense for the Jazz to make this deal. And it doesn't match their timeline whatsoever. We know that Danny likes to be big game hunting, at least being involved. I mean, think about all the years he was involved. Hey, could they trade for Kawhi? Could they trade for Paul George? Could they trade for Jimmy Butler? Could they trade for Anthony Davis? So Danny always likes to be involved in this stuff. But I think part of the reason Danny's involved in this is Pat Riley is on the other side of it, right? But what I love about this is, in some sense, Danny's just like, you know what? This is a fuck you to Pat Riley. And I can picture, and I'm sure you can, Pat Riley just being so pissed off right now. And look, I don't think that Danny's going to end up making the deal, but Danny could at least help the Celtics in some capacity here, right? Because first of all, let's just think about it from this perspective. Could you drive up the price? that Pat Riley has to give up. Like, I can see Pat Riley stewing right now. Like, what the hell is Danny Ainge doing right now? He's not going to trade for him. So he could at least drive up the price for the Heat by making a big-time offer. And secondarily, 
maybe the best case scenario is you turn out that he doesn't go to the Heat because the other offers are getting better and better and the Heat don't have sort of the assets to make a trade. Yeah, they have some picks, but they don't have the young players available to make this really make a lot of sense and maybe more teams get involved and it ends up that Damian Lillard doesn't go to the destination where he wants to go to because Danny Ainge was the guy that got involved and drove up the price. So I do like the bitterness between Danny and Pat Riley, and I have to imagine that this factored into Danny Ainge getting involved in this particular situation. Okay, one leftover Grant thought from our conversation with B-Rob. So if you look at Grant Williams, and if you look at his numbers against Giannis, Nine games guarding Giannis. Giannis was 30 of 67. This goes back to last year's postseason. 30 of 67, which is 44.8%. And if you look at Giannis's numbers on the season, actually identical field goal percentages this year to last year, 55.3% from the field. So remember, when Grant was guarding him, 44.8%. So for a nine-game stretch against the Celtics, and in particular against Grant Williams as the primary defender based on the league's tracking data, He was 10.5 percentage points worse than his season average. And that 55.3%, that's a good number. 44.8% for a guy that doesn't take any threes, that's not a good number. And if you look at Giannis, think about it. Giannis is 242. Grant can match up with him from a physicality standpoint because he's 236. And unlike Embiid, Embiid likes to shoot over the top of Grant Williams, which makes it more difficult for Grant to guard him. Giannis can't shoot, right? So he was one of the only guys that the Celtics had that could legitimately match up with Giannis Antetokounmpo. And if you think about it now, Al Horford is entering his 37-year-old season. Kristaps Porzingis doesn't have the mobility to be able to guard Giannis and, quite frankly, doesn't have a low enough center of gravity to match up with him from a physicality standpoint. Tatum is 210. Jalen is 223. And if you look at Robert Williams, they like to use him as that roaming defender, and he really can't do a good job on Giannis because Giannis is just so much stronger than him and can overpower him. And remember what happened in that series two years ago against Milwaukee. Game seven, I'm not even talking about Grant hitting all the threes, but what I am talking about is Giannis was worn down because he was banging with Al Horford and Grant Williams for seven games. And if you look at the numbers in that game seven, Giannis was 10 of 26, so 38.5% from the field. And he only took six free throws in Game 7, the fewest that he took in the entire series. So he was absolutely gas. So look, you don't make moves based on one team. But I guarantee you right now, the Bucs are happy that Grant Williams is now playing for the Mavericks and not the Celtics. And I think you have a serious concern against the Bucs, right? Because I understand that we all get caught up on what happened against the Miami Heat. But remember, all season long, we were talking about the Celtics on this collision course with the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, it didn't end up happening. And of course, the Heat took out both these teams. And I'm not saying you don't respect the Heat, and especially if they get Damian Lillard, as we were talking about earlier. But the big portion of this is, in that series two years ago, Chris Middleton wasn't even available. And we've talked about that over and over again. And if you think about it, Giannis had to do even more with two guys that were two of the best defenders in the entire NBA against him. In fact, Stan Van Gundy says that Grant Williams is, but two of the better defenders against Giannis in the entire league when you're looking at Al and when you're looking at Grant Williams. And now, if they meet up in the playoffs this year, unless there's a move coming down the road, they only have really Al Horford that can do it from a physicality standpoint. And Al Horford is entering his 37-year-old season. And let's not forget the fact that Al Horford this postseason... The numbers completely dipped off from where he was during the regular season. Remember, he shot just 29.8% from three. And it was really a miracle how much Al Horford has played over the past two seasons. And you just wonder if father time is going to catch up with Al Horford. So from my perspective, this is one of the biggest concerns about the Celtics moving on from Grant Williams. Well, who's covering Giannis? Because this was like the perfect scenario for the Celtics is, hey, We got the perfect guy to cover on Giannis because Grant Williams is so strong. He can body him up. And now you don't have that at your disposal anymore. I understand as we were talking about B-Rob, everything with the second apron and all that different type of stuff. But this is just something to keep in the back of your mind as you get into next season and you think about a potential playoff series. You're not going to have Grant Williams. So I know Grant Williams can be annoying at times. He fell out of the rotation at times this year. But that is, and I told you at the time, I didn't agree with him falling out of the rotation. But that is one concern going forward for the Celtics team is you don't have Grant 
if you potentially move on and face the Bucs in a potential playoff series. Okay, as always, get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172. But let's get to the emails today at offthepike at gmail.com. That's where we bring in Jamie McClellan, our producer. Jamie, what's up, man? I'm good, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. I'm not so sure. I feel great about the depth of the Celtics right now. I do like the Porzingis move, but I'm doing well. We finally got some nice weather here locally, which is something we like to see. I guess, man. I'm sweating my ass off right now, but <laughs> it's hot at least. <laughs> yeah, 90s, man. Let's, I'll take this over the rain any day of the yeah. week. Come on. Yeah, fair enough. Um, this is one question from Miles Grant, actually about Grant. He writes, why isn't anyone talking about Sam Hauser as Grant's rotation replacement? Very similar stats per 36 minutes, and Hauser would make one-sixth of the salary over the next two years. Um, not sure how that relates to Giannis, but what do you think of that? Well, I think we talked about that with B-Rub, right? Like, and if you look at it this year at times, Sam Hauser did take minutes away from Grant Williams. And if you go back to the beginning of the Atlanta series... They went with Hauser over Grant Williams. So I would expect Hauser to get the majority of those minutes, especially considering the fact that he was really good for the first two and a half months of the season. The shooting dipped a little bit, and we found out in the playoffs that he wasn't really shooting the ball well either. And I do think that Hauser is sort of, people think he's a way worse defender than he is. Like guys just attack him, and it ends up sort of rendering your offense ineffective because they just get so obsessed with attacking Hauser. And part of that is, Okay, out of the guys on the court, like he's probably most of the time the weakest defender because the Celtics had so much great defensive personnel. But now with some of those guys out when we're talking about Grant and we're talking about Marcus Smart, you're going to have less guys or more guys to target, right? Like Brogdon's not a great defender. Porzingis, we'll see if teams can lift him. Now, Porzingis' defensive number is really good last year, but that's going to be more drop coverage stuff. I just feel like the Celtics... They're not as versatile without Grant Williams. Now, I love the Porzingis ad, and I believe as I was chatting with B-Rob about, it's an upside play with Porzingis. I just feel like, man, this team's really thin, and I do wonder if Brad's going to be waiting until the trading deadline to add somebody else, Mm -hmm. or they're hoping one of these guys they're paying the minimum to ends up performing at a high level, or they get something out of the rookie in Jordan Walsh, because they're going to need that type of performance going forward from one of those guys. And the good thing for the Celtics We've seen this before from them, right? Like Grant Williams is a great developmental story. Nobody expected Grant Williams to turn into the player that he is. So maybe they hit on somebody, whether it be Jordan Walsh or whether it be maybe O'Shea Brissett, the kid they got from Indiana that he played at Syracuse. We'll see if he can uh, get it going. But I am very concerned about the depth entering the season, especially if you have an injury, right? Like, yeah, we see guys miss time all the time. Now, Tatum has been pretty reliable as it pertains to his injury history. Jalen was more reliable last year than he's been in the past. But Brogdon is an injury risk. Derek White is certainly not an injury risk. Al's 37. Rob, it's <laughs> basically if you look it up the dictionary, it says injury risk. Robert Williams. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of this, Brian, is uh, making me a little nervous about any potential Damian Lillard trade, which would make them even less deep and worse at defense, et cetera. But even so, it's from Barry. It's about potential trade for Lillard. He writes, hey, Brian, great show as always. The boss conspiracy Bill hinted on this on his podcast. I'm interested in your thoughts. Maybe the silence on the Jalen contract is that the Celtics don't really want to pay the $295 million for him and would love to include him in any offer for Dame. Obviously, if he signs the Supermax, he can't be traded for a year. But the trick is finding a third team that feels confident that Jalen would sign with them long term, maybe the Hawks or the Rockets, if he likely doesn't want to make that commitment to Portland. I'm also interested in who would owe whom extra pieces in this scenario. Is a 26-year-old Jalen more or less invaluable than a 32-year-old Dame? Also, the Celtics may be looking to build a more traditional big three with a point guard, Lillard, a wing with Tatum, and a big with Porzingis rather than two wings and a big. What do you make all of that? Okay, so I'm not worried. We talked about this with B-Rob as well. Jalen's going to get his extension. But this is the other thing I would say as it pertains to Jalen. I would trade him for Damian Lillard. I said that on multiple occasions. I would. I don't believe the Celtics would. I don't think they want to move on from Jalen Brown. I think they want to give him a Supermax extension. And all the reporting indicates that they're just working towards getting that done. There's a lot of bells and whistles that have to be done with that contract. But... I look at it from this perspective. When you're talking about trading, Damian Lillard has more value than Jalen Brown does. 
Okay. Damian Lillard is a top 75 player in NBA history. The guy's an absolute stud. He's one of the best scorers in the NBA. And I get it. He's not a great defender. Jalen Brown's not a great defender. You know what else Jalen Brown can't do? Shoot threes. You know what Damian Lillard can do? Shoot threes. You know what Damian Lillard can do? Close out games. You know what Jalen Brown can't do? Close out games, right? And I like Jalen as a player. This isn't meant to be a big indictment on Jalen. Now, Jalen is a piece where you would have to give up a lot less than these other teams that are after him, right? Because Jalen is an all-NBA caliber player. But if you're making a trade, Damian Lillard for Jalen Brown, something else is coming from the Celtics, not coming from the Portland Trailblazers. And that would be, I mean, that would be one hell of a big three. But I would imagine if the Celtics do try to make a deal, it would be Brogdon, Rob Williams, in terms of the money, just to make that work. You throw in something else and then... Draft picks. That's what it would be. It, right. it wouldn't be Jalen Brown. They're not gonna. I don't see them moving on from Jalen Brown at this point. I mean, what are you doing though? If you go Rob Williams, Brogdon, and four first round picks, I mean, what does that leave you with your depth? You think? I mean, who's who, who are the big guys? You're really thin, but you're the favorite. Well, Porzingis and Al. Go. But you're you're really thin. You're yeah. really thin, but you're the favorites to win the East. And you maybe even be the favorite to win it over Denver if you have that group. Because I don't know how you stop that team offensively. Tatum, Porzingis, and Dame. I don't know how you stop them offensively. Plus, you still have Derek White as your point guard, like, or your number, your two guard if Dame's coming in, right? So you have White playing the two, an elite defender, and the Celtics guys can make up for him defensively. Like his defensive weaknesses, it's not going to be as big of an issue with the Celtics. But I I don't see them trading Jalen anyway. But in terms of the Rob Brogdon thing, that would be the answer. Is they just say, hey. We're just going to go try to win over the next two years, which I wouldn't blame them if they wanted to try to do that because the window's there to try to win a championship. They'd be pretty unstoppable for sure. Yeah. No Um, doubt. This next email is from Dave Taylor, North Carolina. He's looking more at the coaching side of things. He says, please tell me what you think of my three questions facing the Celtics this year. Number one, can Joe Mazzula check his ego, his stubbornness, and shoot a three or bust mentality? and realized that he has a viable multidimensional offense with an inside game with Porzingis. Uh, number two, similar to question one, will Joe Mazzula let Sam Cassell and Charles Lee, both with more experience and credibility than him, have a major influence over the game planning and in-game management this year? And finally, can JB, JT, and Porzingis adopt a Pierce, KG, and Rayon mentality of getting the ball to whoever is hot and all that matters is W's versus the stats? Okay, so to the last part, I mean, Jalen's just not a good passer. I don't think it's like a selfish thing. He's just not a good passer. As it pertains to Tatum, I feel like he improves his playmaking every year. Like, look at some of the assist numbers throughout the last two postseason runs. Yeah, I think Tatum does a really good job as his playmaking is. So I don't think it's like a selfish thing where they don't find the right guys. But in terms of the coaching aspect... I don't think Joe Mazzulla has a choice, right? Because they brought in these veteran coaches in Sam Cassell and Charles Lee who are going to have opportunities down the road to get head coaching opportunities. Charles Lee was just a finalist for two. So I certainly think that he's going to accept the input from those guys. And in terms of the offense, the versatility, you have to accept it because if you don't, you're not going to get the best out of Porzingis. Like, I'm sorry, Joe, you're going to have to post him up. He was one of the most efficient post scores in the entire NBA last season. So if you're going to make the most out of your roster, it would behoove you to post up Porzingis. And the other thing I would say is this. I understand, and I got aggravated at times with like the reliance on the three. We talked about it throughout the postseason during the regular season as well. But this should help the Celtics, where it's like, oh, we're not hitting our threes, right? And last year, what would they do? Just double down on the threes. Because outside of Tatum, they don't have a lot of guys to get to the free throw line, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm going to attack the basket. And I would like Tatum, as I alluded to a couple of podcasts ago, I would like him to up his drive game. I was referencing the Luka and the Shea Gilgis-Alexander numbers mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago in terms of the drives. I would like Tatum to get over 10 points a game off his drives. But my overall point about that is the Celtics are not a big free throw team, right? So if you're not a big free throw team and you're not hitting your threes, you have to find a different way to score And giving the ball to Porzingis in the post is another way to score when you're in these ruts. So I think that's part of the value of Porzingis as well, is he'll get you out of some of these ruts. Yeah, I hear you on that. And I guess just, uh, you know, I've had my criticism of Missoula, but I don't think there's anything to any reason to believe that he's not willing to cooperate with his coaches. I think he just had a shorthanded staff, you know, I think he's going to you got to think he was involved in the hiring these guys in the first place. No. Yeah, I'm sure that, 
you know, Brad identified guys and they were told like, this is for Joe staff. And I'm sure Joe was okay with all that. Yeah. I'm sure Joe, like it have to have been weird for Joe too, right? Like, because think about it. We talked about yeah. some of the coaches that left. Think about it from Missoula's perspective. I'm a first year head coach. I'm getting the job like six days before training or whatever it was, a couple days before training camp. I don't even think it was six days. And now like I jumped over a bunch of guys like Damon Stoudemire had an yeah. argument to be the head coach. Ben totally. Sullivan had an argument to be the head coach. And I'm the guy that gets the job. Like, that's a weird dynamic for him to handle as well, where it's like, okay, now I'm Ben Sullivan's boss and I'm Damon Stoudemire's boss. And last season, I was sitting behind the bench and they were on the bench. So, like, I know we've critiqued Joe over the year as well. It, it's It was his first year, so I do give him some sympathy when it comes to that. And it's also just a weird situation. Now these guys were hired. Like, Ben Sullivan and Damon Stoudemire were here to coach for Ime. These guys, Sam Cassell and Charles Lee, that were brought in, they're here to coach for Joe Mazzulla. Yeah. So it just, it's a better fit than it was previously just in terms of the coaching staff. And they're both very experienced head coaches, or excuse me, very experienced assistant coaches. Mm -hmm. No, totally. Fresh start next year. Uh, I think it's going to be good. But um, switching gears to other recalcitrant coaches, we have an email from Andrew in Watertown. He writes, hey, Brian, fascinating conversation with Ted Johnson. I always enjoy his perspective, and of course, he was a great player. Those two things make him a great guest, so please bring him back. I was struck by how candid and negative he was about the coach that Belichick has become in recent years. Interested in his legacy and writing his own narrative. More invested in player and staff loyalty than winning games and so on. Hiring Patricia and Judge last year, re-upping Parker, and keeping Bourne on the sidelines are obvious examples. My question is, why does Bob Kraft keep putting up with it, and how much longer will he? Mm. Well, part of the reason he keeps putting up with it is Bill did win six Super Bowls, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't just Brady, it was Bill. And if you're moving on from Bill Belichick, and I know like a lot of the fan base recently wants to criticize Bill, and I totally understand that, and we did a lot of that in the pod last year in terms of the decisions. The Patricia decision, horrible. You wasted a year of your young quarterback's development, right? Like, you cannot defend that decision whatsoever. But I would say if things go in the wrong direction this year, maybe Kraft would consider something along those lines because we have seen that Kraft publicly has been putting more pressure on Bill than he has in previous seasons when he mentions, I spent a lot of money on this team, right? I want to get to the playoffs. Like all this stuff is putting pressure on Bill. And I also think that Bill O'Brien wasn't just a Bill Belichick decision, no. that there was a little like, hey, uh, Bill. I listened to you last year because remember what Kraft did? He was at the owner's meeting last year and he was interviewed to paraphrase. Right. He said, well, Bill's made a lot of unconventional decisions and most of the time they work. So he was actually defending the coach and then he looks like an idiot for defending the coach because everybody else in the world was saying this makes no sense. Patricia should not be calling plays. Joe Judge should not be involved with the quarterback. And then you turn around and everybody was right besides Bill, right? So that's when I look at it and say, okay, if things go south this year, then maybe Robert Kraft would make a change, right? Because then you think about it, it would be since Brady left, three out of four years, you don't make it into the postseason, right? And yeah. you would start to think about it from that perspective and say, hey, maybe that's when Kraft decides to pull the plug on the Belichick thing. Yeah, I mean, three out of four years would be tough. And I totally get the criticism of Belichick. He's extremely frustrating the past couple of years it's just uh it's just hard because they haven't been terrible teams you know they've always yeah. been like fairly competitive and in it into week 17 18 so i feel like they have a pretty good roster and as much shit as belichick gets recently he, he did make a pretty killer defense right yeah and jamie i think there's a there's another fear too brady left and Kraft tried to take no blame for that but he backed bill okay he could have easily stepped in right. and said, Bill, either you sign him or you're gone. He didn't, okay? So I know he wants to call up Stephen A. Smith during the break of his show and say Tom wanted to leave. He tried to blame Tom. Then he tried to he tried to blame everybody but himself. You're the owner of the team. You can make the fucking decision, right? Like, So he tried to get off with no blame whatsoever when clearly there was blame to be laid at Robert Kraft as it pertains to the Brady decision. But Brady leaves. He wins the Super Bowl in Tampa in year one. Are you going to be the guy <laughs> that moves on from the greatest quarterback of all time and the greatest coach of all time and the greatest coach of all time ends up with a different team the mm. next year? And Belichick has success somewhere else. So I think that's part of the calculus, too. 
Like, do you want, do you really want to be the guy that moved on from both Bill and Tom? Because then the fear is, well, what if Bill has success? Yeah, then it's a, it's then true. it's a bad look, right? Totally. I mean, all you need to do is go to some team with a half decent quarterback and you know, they got a shot. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, Bill, clearly, I mean, he got to the playoffs with Mac as a rookie. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. Brian, talk to you soon. Will do. Will do. All right. If you want to leave a voicemail, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. All right. Coming up next, metric man breakdown of Brian Bayo. We have to do it. It is long overdue. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So we are witnessing something very exciting with this Red Sox team in this middling, mediocre year for them, and that's the development of Brian Bayo. Now, I didn't think he had his best stuff on Wednesday night. It felt like he was losing it sort of in that sixth inning. He gave up the double to Seager on a four-seamer that was middle in, a bad spot, and then Garcia hit the home run on a sinker that was not down enough that Garcia was able to elevate and get out of the ballpark. But then he goes back out for the seventh inning, and you look up, and it's seven innings, and it's two earned runs. Another great start from Bayo, right? So if you look at this whole thing, just to put a metric man breakdown on this, if you look at his last six starts now, I mean, this is amazing. Six innings, three earns. That's his worst start of his last six. Seven innings, two earned. Seven innings, one earned. Six and two-thirds, one earned. Seven innings, one earned. Seven innings, two earned. The kid is absolutely shoving right now. No way around it. He's been incredible for this team. And it's one of the things that it makes you feel sort of bad about the season because this should be like an even bigger story, but the Red Sox have not been good. So we've been talking about Kike at short. We're talking about all these different things. The the issues as it pertains to the injuries with the starting rotation, the Kluber situation, and Bayo has just been so good for this team and so reliable for this team. And he's in his rookie season. He's in his 24-year-old season. So if you look at his last 12 starts going back to the 29th of April, that's when he started to become part of the everyday rotation, if you will, or the every five-day rotation. Because remember, at the beginning of the season, he wasn't up. Then he came up for a start. He went back down. He came back up. So I'm looking at his, his last 12 starts when he's been able to pitch every fifth or sixth day. So during that stretch, how about this? This is over 12 starts. 235 ERA. That is fourth among starters during that stretch, among 73 qualified starters. Fourth in all of baseball, not just in the American League, fourth in all of baseball. He has 24 people, 24 years of age, and he's fourth in ERA over his last 12 starts. So during that stretch, his strikeout rate is just 20.9%, well below average. MLB average is about 25%. So, and by the way, in terms of those starters, 49th of 73. So how's he doing this? Well, his hard hit rate, balls off the bat, 95 plus miles per hour, that's at 41.1%. That's not great either. That's 44th of those 73 starters. Wait, so he's not striking guys out. He isn't preventing loud contact. Well, it doesn't make sense. How, how is this happening? How is he putting up these numbers? Actually, it does make sense because the majority of that loud contact is on the ground. The ground ball rate is at 55.6%. That is third among those 73 starters. And just 13.1% of his batted balls are line drives. That's third among those starters. His ground ball, the fly ball rate is almost 2 to 1. 1 1.78, that's sixth of those starters. And the launch angle is at 6.5 degrees. That's fifth during that stretch. Anything under 10 degrees, it's going to be a ground ball. He's at 6.5 in terms of the average launch angle on batted balls. So when you think about it, if most of the balls in play you give up are on the ground, guess what? That hard hit rate, the ball's off the bat 95 plus miles an hour being north of 41%. Well, guess what? It doesn't mean jack shit because everything's on the ground. So it's tough to put up crooked numbers when you're not getting the ball in the air because you're not going to get a lot of extra base hits that way, right? And secondarily, you're going to have to find holes in the infield. And even though the Red Sox infield defense has been bad, it's tough to string together a bunch of consecutive hits when the balls are on the ground, right? And I actually believe long-term, like the strikeouts for Bayo will go up. The stuff is nasty. But part of the reason he can give you all these long outings, I just went through the last six, right, where he's gone at least six innings in all of them. Part of the reason he can give you that is because he's pitching to contact. So the pitch count isn't getting as high as a traditional strikeout pitcher because he's getting ground balls in the infield. He's getting quick innings. And all the stuff is nasty. So even though the 
he isn't striking guys out or he isn't getting whiffs. It's contact to the ground. Everything with him is difficult to hit because it's down in the strike zone. So it's very difficult to do damage against him. That's how nasty the stuff is when you look at the sinker and when you look at the changeup, the movement he gets on those pitches. Now, the one issue that he has right now, and like I said, this is just a full breakdown of the guy. This is, I'm not like nitpick. I'm, I'm just pointing out the one issue he has right now. Lefties are naturally hitting better against him than righties are. 264 compared to 216, which you expect the left-handed hitters to hit better against a right-handed pitcher. So with lefties, the four-seamer, like we mentioned with Corey Seager, is getting hit. So lefties are hitting 277 against the four-seamer. 553 slug, and the expected slug is actually at 648. The launch angle on that pitch is 18 degrees. So we talked about it in terms of overall, he's south of 7 degrees with the launch angle, which is a ground ball. 18 degrees against lefties on that four-seamer. So that's the one pitch, like we saw from Seager on Wednesday night, that lefties are actually doing damage against. So that means the reason they're doing damage with that pitch is what? They're elevating it. All these other pitches, he's getting on the ground. That four-seamers to lefties, it's getting elevated. And that's been one of the issues, that one of the only issues he's had. Now, the sinker, which plays better to righties to lefties naturally, they're also hitting 286 lefties against that pitch. Now, the good news is they can't hit his changeup. Lefties have a 43.1% whiff rate against the changeup. It's nasty. It's his best pitch. And just a 188 expected batting average and a three-degree launch angle. So he's either going to miss the bat with the changeup to a lefty or they're going to hit it on the ground. And even if you look at, so the sinker against righties, 218 batting average, the four-seamer, 143. So even though the strikeouts are not high, he can get whiffs when he wants to with the changeup. He has an out pitch already. The one thing he needs to figure out long-term, and I have... All the confidence in the world that he will because he's 24 and for a 12 game stretch, he's been a top five pitcher by the numbers in Major League Baseball. But if you look at it, the one thing he needs to figure out is the fastball to left handed hitters, whether it's the sinker or whether it's going to be the four seamer needs to be more consistent. And the one thing about the four seamer, and I think this is why this is just a guess on my behalf. Okay, this is my observation. I think the one reason he has issues with the four seamer to lefties is all his stuff is ordinarily down, right? The sinker is down naturally. The chains up is down, right? And the one issue you have with the four-seamer, that's a pitch that you need to throw over the launch angle, right? That is a pitch that needs to be up in the strike zone. So I think at times he has issues locating that pitch up in the zone just because everything else that he throws, it's going to be down in the strike zone. So I think that's the one difficulty that he has. But the good news is the changeup to lefties, they can't touch. And I, like I said, I expect him to get better and better as this season goes on and into the future. So the big takeaway is you have a front end of the rotation guy for the foreseeable future. So that brings me to Bloom, and something that would actually help him with the ownership group and help him with the fan base. Get your work done early. Get an extension done with Brian Bayo now. He's part of your present and he's part of your future. You don't need to see anything else. So get this deal done so we're not worrying about it like the Raphael Devers thing. Like Raphael Devers should have got extended a long time ago. You should have bought out the arbitration years, got it done so you weren't paying north the $300 million, right? So Bayo is still pre-arbitration. He is a long way away from free agency. But why not get this done early and then not wait around and don't worry about it? This is what the Atlanta Braves, who are one of the two best organizations right now in the sport, or one of the best three, I would say it's the Braves... It's the Dodgers, and you can't deny the Houston Astros, despite the cheating scandal. They've won two World Series in the past couple of years, and last year they, of course, did it without cheating. But nonetheless, my point being is the Braves, the reason they've been so good is they do their work early and they extend their young core. Acuna, all these guys, Elbies, all these guys get extended early, right? They already extended Harris. So if you look at their young stud in terms of the rotation, it's Spencer Strider. And they bought out... The final two pre-arbitration seasons and all three of his arbitration years. Okay, so Strider was signed after his rookie season. Sound familiar? Bayo's going to finish up his rookie season this year, right? So if you look at Strider in his rookie year, 267 ERA compared to Bayo at 302. The whip 0.96 compared to Bayo at 1.20. So Strider, obviously, one of the best pitchers in the game already and better than Bayo in his rookie season, despite the fact Bayo's really good, not taking anything away from Bayo, but Strider was better last year. Er, last year than Bayo is this year. So Strider, if you look at it, Atlanta got in on this early and he's now signed through his 29-year-old season and they actually have a club option for his 30-year-old season. So they signed him 24 through 30. 
made sure he signed up long term. And the deal was six for 75 million. So about $12.5 million per season. Okay. So <laughs> think about that $12.5 million. And think about Strider this year. He's ninth in fan graph war among starters, 3.66 in terms of his ERA. His FIP is 299, which is seventh. That's just fielding independent of pitching, which accounts for your defense. Then you look at his strikeout rate. Here's the big number on Strider, 38.6%. That's first in Major League Baseball among starters. So best strikeout rate, seventh in FIP, ninth in war. So the way the contract was structured Strider really gets his big payday starting in 2026 when it balloons up to $20 million. But if you take the average, it's $12.5 million per season, as we were alluding to. So let's just take the average for the sake of this conversation in terms of that 12.5. So that 12.5 would rank around 44th among starters this year. Think about what the free agents cost in terms of starting pitchers. Scherzer, 43.3. Verlander, 45.3. DeGrom, 30, and he's hurt. Sale, 27.5, not a free agent. We all know that was a bad contract. Stroman, 25. Wheeler, 25, 24.5. Rodon, 22.8, hasn't pitched for the Yankees, right? Dealing with an injury. Gosman, 21 million for Toronto. So the Braves are getting a guy that's paid like the 44th best starter in Major League Baseball, performing like a number one guy in their rotation. So odds are the numbers after the season won't be as good for Bayo as Strider, but it'll be a really good rookie season. And the numbers, they're already really good. They're going to continue to get better. The Sox could probably get something done less than the number that the Braves got for Strider, right? Let's say it's $66 million over six years. So $11 million per season, unlike the 12.5 Strider got, because Strider's obviously a better pitcher than Bayo. But that would keep him under contract through his 30-year-old season. So you buy out his prime years. When a player is this far away from free agency, they're more willing to play ball. Because the problem you run into is, as Bayo gets closer and closer to free agency and his numbers continue to get really good, he's going to be less willing because when he gets to arbitration, that number is going to skyrocket. He's going to be less willing to negotiate a long-term contract extension because he's getting closer to hitting free agency, sort of like Raphael Devers, right? So if you think about it, this is a guy this season that's making less than $730,000, right? He's not even making a million dollars this season. And it's very difficult for a pitcher to risk his future going forward, right? Where Bayo, this is life-changing money. You make $66 million guaranteed money. That is life-altering money. It's very difficult to pass that up when you're not a free agent until what, 2028. So, but when you get to 2026, 2027, it becomes easier to pass that up. So right now, if you look at this, this is a young guy, part of your young core, part of your present core going forward that you'd love to be signed up long term and not worry about that contract extension until he's 30 years old. Why would you not get your work done early on this guy? So the Red Sox right now, they have a really good thing going. They have a controllable guy going forward in terms of he's under contract for them for the foreseeable future. Be smart. Get a deal done. Pay your young stud and don't worry, you're going to have a guy in the front end of your rotation for the next two to three or next six to seven years going forward. If it was me and I'm high in bloom, I want to win over the fan base a little bit. I want to win over the ownership group a little bit. Get a good deal done. And high bloom did this last year with Whitlock. It's a good deal. But Bayo is a has proven way more than any of these other young arms, whether it be Hulk. And unfortunately, of course, Hulk's dealing with the injury. Wish the best there. He's apparently going to start eating solid foods later on this week. He's been just eating soup, but I don't believe he's a starter long term. Crawford has been much better as it pertains to a reliever. Same thing with Whitlock. We talked about him the other day. I just don't think he has the body because we just keep seeing the injuries. I don't think his body can hold up as a starter. Winkowski has struggled as of late, has not been the same guy that we saw from the majority of the season. This is the guy. This is the best pitcher right now. This guy has been phenomenal all season long. So get this deal done. Get it done early. And don't worry about it until he's 30 years old. And then if he's aging at 30, you don't have to sign him. But make sure you take care of his peak years. Okay. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Struti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.
Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 hope and or text hope and why